Welcome to the Daily Dive Weekend Edition. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and every week I explore the top stories making waves in the news and some that are just plain interesting. I'll connect you with the journalists and the people who know the story and bring you news without the noise so you can make an informed decision. You can catch a new episode of The Daily Dive every Monday through Friday, and it's ready when you wake up. On the weekend edition, I'll be bringing you some of the best stories from the week. One of the other top stories that played out during the week was the story of NASCAR driver Bubba Wallace. The FBI has concluded its investigation into a noose that was found in the garage stall of Bubba Wallace at the Talladega Super Speedway. And what they found was that he was not the target of a hate crime and that it was a garage rope pull that was there since October 2019. Still, the rope pull caused a big stir throughout the NASCAR world. For more on this story, we'll speak to Cindy Boren, sports reporter at the Washington Post. The rope has been there for, what is that, 10 months? Whatever time means these days. According to pictures, which haven't been widely circulated, but they're certainly on the internet, it's just sort of hanging down there. You know, I think most people who have garage doors have a mechanism, you know, that they can pull it down with a rope or some sort of rope-like thing, right? Bubba Wallace never saw it. He was not told about it. His team didn't go crying to NASCAR about it. You know, NASCAR is the one that announced it on Sunday. Then the feds got involved and said they were investigating. And of course, it made for the great scene on Monday at the final day of the race. But had NASCAR not announced it and, you know, an investigation into it, they probably wouldn't have noticed it. And we'd have all gone about our, you know, lives. And as I mentioned, it was a a crew member for his team that noticed that he reported it to the head of their team and they reported to NASCAR. And as you mentioned, the rest of it kind of went that way. I think NASCAR said that they are still performing an investigation as to why it was there in the first place, though. There was no way that the person who put that there could have known that Bubba Wallace was going to get that garage. The garages were only assigned, I think, like in the last week or 10 days. So it was a pretty odd set of circumstances. Certainly, you can understand that that would raise some suspicions um, in NASCAR and you'd want to know more. But unfortunately for this, everybody kind of accuses Bubba Wallace of falsifying a claim when, you know, he didn't even do it. Right, yeah, exactly. And the FBI also mentioned that. And uh, uh, Steve Phelps from uh, NASCAR also mentioned, you know, that the number 43 team and, and Bubba Wallace had nothing to do with it. Wallace yep. himself didn't even find it. Phelps had to make the call and, and let him know what was going on. And you mentioned the pictures that were floating around on the Internet. It's a little grainy. It's kind of hard to see. It does look like it could be a noose. Although the FBI said it was not a functioning noose. And then a lot of people were saying, well, exactly. it's, just, it's just a loop tied into the rope, things like that. Bubba Wallace did a few interviews where he said, hey, it just looks like one to me. You know, I've been in garages a long time. <laughs> I haven't seen any other ones. I think in any of the other garage stalls, there wasn't a rope similar to that also. So in Bubba Wallace's head, you know, he said it looks like a noose. It was a rope pull for for the garage door. It was attached. The the image you see of where it was cut, that's exactly what it was. But it was definitely in the shape of a noose. It wasn't a functioning noose. I talked to the FBI. They gave me the lowdown of all the investigation research they they have completed and found out that it was a garage pull, but it, in fact, was a noose. It was not a functioning noose, but it, it, it was a noose. And you have to consider what was going on. He obviously pushed for NASCAR to ban the Confederate flag. The initial day of the race, there was a lot of people flying the flag. And it's understanding to think that he was uneasy at some times there. It's such 
a horrific symbol. It's just horrible. And, you know, it carries so much meaning and so much weight. And it looked like the rope was really super long. So maybe someone was trying to tie it and make a handle or something out of it. I'm trying to bend over backwards here. But come on, it's a noose. The FBI said it was. It's not a functioning noose. um, Thank God. But it's a noose and it doesn't belong there. It just has no place there. I don't know that they'll ever know then who, who would have done that, you know, conceivably with someone who works around Talladega Super Speedway and just nodded it last year, last fall sometime. Just the coincidence, people are calling it that ended up being Bubba Wallace's garage stall at that point. And then what happens as a result of all of this is the next day before the race, a really truly touching moment when all the drivers and all the crews walked Bubba Wallace's car to the starting line there. Bubba Wallace got out of his car and was crying. It was really a special moment showing how much support he had there from all the other teams. And then on the other side of it, they feel maybe like they were targeted unfairly because of this. So it really just widens the divide on this whole conversation. And it was frustrating for Bubba Wallace, who just wants to move on and and race. He had a high enough profile as NASCAR's only African-American in the, you know, in the elite cup series as it was. And now he's got all this to deal with the dreaded distraction, you know, that athletes hate. But he also uh, realizes that the time that we're living in and, you know, he accepted responsibility and spoke out about the Confederate flag. He's been a leader in NASCAR. You know, he's 26 years old. He's going to be a force in NASCAR for years to come, no matter how successful he actually is on the track. I think he finished 14th on Monday. And that was, I think, his best finish. You know, he's, he's pretty young, but this is somebody who's going to be a leader. And he's been willing to talk about it. His mother even mentioned the other day that there had been several racist incidents as he was coming up through NASCAR that he'd been called the N-word a couple of times. And let's face it, drivers always mix it up with one another and shout at one another and go at one another. It's NASCAR. It's what happened outside of their cars. So he's heard some things before, according to his mother. Cindy Bourne, sports reporter at The Washington Post. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks. Great to be with you. States across the country are experiencing increased numbers of coronavirus cases. And let's take a look at Florida. Florida's party and tourism-fueled economy is contributing to that rise. Florida itself has the makings of possibly being the next large epicenter. And the demographics are also changing. More people in their 20s and 30s are contracting the virus. Things could also get complicated when President Trump takes the convention there in August. For more on the rising numbers in Florida, we'll speak to Francisco Alvarado, contributor to the Daily Beast. Florida, it's, again, it's most of the jobs down here are hospitality related, meaning that people either work in restaurants or they work in hotels or they're basically working in venues where there's going to be a lot of people coming in. And it's also a very big party town and specifically in, in Miami-Dade. So when things started reopening and they started allowing venues like restaurants to reopen, there's some restaurants that are really not quote unquote restaurants. They're more like supper clubs where people can go party. You can have dinner and at the same time there's a DJ there and then people are dancing and people are smoking hookahs. It's really a a surreal scene when you break it down with everything that's happening around us. There's even an Instagram account that started up here in Miami where they're posting videos and pictures of businesses that are not adhering to the regulations of making sure people are wearing masks and social distancing. So when you see videos of people 
shoulder to shoulder, elbow to elbow at a pool party inside a restaurant where, you know, instead of just, you know, having dinner, but they're actually dancing and having a good time. It's easy to see why we're seeing our numbers increase so much. Last week, I think the record was like a little over a thousand a day reported. And now today we got 5,500 reported in one day. So that's kind of the situation down here. Now, Florida is an interesting example because they were one of the later states to impose the stay at home orders when this all started. And they were one of the first states that have started opening up. And early on, people, despite those stay at home orders, they started staying home. They started taking precautions. Now it seems like being locked down for a while, obviously everybody wants to get back out there, but the demographics of this are changing now. The people that are actually getting sick now are younger people in their 20s and 30s. And in most states where all the sicknesses are coming from, you know, they're in a lot of nursing homes. They are the elderly, more vulnerable populations that have comorbidities and all. But right now we're seeing an uptick in younger people getting infected. Because those are the people that are going out. Those are the people that you're seeing in these restaurants that I just mentioned. They're the ones that are believed because they don't have core morbidities and they don't have anything to worry about. They don't have any pre-existing health conditions that would make them more cautious. So they're just returning back to their normal lives. I mean, I can tell you, like, aside from my own article, I live like near the water and you can see like just boats passing by and like the boats are packed with people. People think that just because it's like five or six of them together that they're okay. They limit the gatherings of 10 or more. So they think if they stay under 10, that nothing's going to happen. And that's really not the case. It's an unfortunate thing. But here, another thing that's the problem here that why people, I think, go out a lot here in Florida is our sunshine. Obviously, that's our major draw, but it's also one of the reasons, I think, that people are going out again. People don't want to be inside their house. They want to be out enjoying the weather, and they want to catch up with their friends on Ocean Drive and have drinks on Ocean Drive. And then next thing you know, they don't even know it. They're exposing themselves to this virus. Obviously, nobody wants it to happen, but that's kind of where everybody's mindset is at, looking out to see where the next big epicenter in the United States is going to be. And Florida has the makings of it. Arizona, Texas, they're all experiencing these shifts up in infections. One of the other things on the political side of things, President Trump, they're set to do the Republican National Convention there now in August. They moved it from uh, North Carolina because they weren't going to you know, maybe be able to do it the way they wanted to. And I know that there's a bunch of people that are saying, well, we don't want it here either now for fear that it could be a, a big super spreader event. That's just kind of like inviting trouble, having a, an event the size of a national political convention like the Republican National Convention. You're going to have people coming from all over the country into Jacksonville. And somebody had just pointed out to me that, you know, that these are folks that are not necessarily believers of wearing masks and social distancing. Some may even think that this whole thing is a hoax and they're all going to be gathering at the convention and that the possibility is high that they can catch this virus. They're going to be flying home and possibly spreading it to wherever they're coming from. Just to end this off, because uh, I thought it was a fun way to start the article, and we're talking about the party and tourism-fueled economy that Florida has there. You know, you told a quick story about somebody who wanted to go out late, get some food. The only place he could go to was a gentleman's club that served food. I think it was called Gold Rush Cabaret. And what did he see in there? Well, he said that he was actually rather impressed by the measures they had taken. Before he even went in, they made sure he had a mask. They um, took his temperature. He said they sprayed him his hands down with some sort of you know alcohol solution, and that once they went inside, they gave him his own table, and he was about six or eight feet away from the next tables around him. And that he saw that, you know, but there was still you know fairly decent crowd, about a hundred people, half of them dancers, 
that everybody was wearing masks and that everybody was keeping to themselves. It wasn't like a typical strip club atmosphere, you know, where <laughs> right. people are like walking around from bar to bar, you know, stopping to talk to one dancer, the next dancer. And he said it was just more like people keeping to themselves. Something I didn't get into the story. He said that it felt like people were like treating each other like they were lepers if yeah. you weren't part of their group. But still, it's, you know, it's an enclosed space and, you know, you can wear a mask, you can social distance. You're still going out and taking that risk. Francisco Alvarado, contributor to The Daily Beast. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. Have a great day. Finally, for this week, one of my favorite things I've been waiting for to reopen is my favorite dive bar. But unfortunately, everything that makes a dive bar great makes them especially vulnerable to COVID-19. Dark interiors and busy atmospheres might lend itself to a good time, but it also makes it hard to social distance and keep the air clean. The big question is, are patrons ready to go back? For more on this, we'll speak to Nick mancall Battel, reporter at Eater. I spoke to a number of bartenders, bar owners all over the country, and the situation really differs in each city, but there were definitely some overlapping factors. So people really love going to rowdy dive bars because they are small and they're notoriously dirty. And even if that stereotype isn't exactly true for most places, it still gives them a reputation that maybe makes customers a little bit wary about going in the COVID era. You know, they tend to do a lot of business at the bar as opposed to tables. So it's kind of hard to socially distance there. They deal in cash, which has become really taboo. They do things that are normally really cute and fun, like they serve communal snacks. And obviously that can't happen now. So these businesses are really struggling, even in comparison to other restaurants and bars around them who maybe can pivot to provide to-go cocktails due to loosened regulations in some cities. Dive bars can't really do that, either because they don't serve mixed drinks or they're not known for that. And unless a customer is going to go out of their way to throw a few dollars to a dive bar, they're probably not going to order a beer to go. So there are not a lot of options for these owners, even the ones who are sort of trying to work with the regulations in their cities because customers just aren't coming for that. So let's talk about some of those regulations, because as things started to open up, one of the rules in a lot of places was you had to serve food if you were going to also serve drinks. So right away, a lot of these drinks only bars were at a disadvantage and they were making partnerships with restaurants or or something else so that they could do both. Again, it kind of comes down to the city because regulations are differing everywhere and they're changing all the time, which is making it really hard for some of these owners. But yeah, Susan Carnell, who owns the living room in L.A., partnered with a soul food restaurant next door or was planning to uh, as a few weeks ago to set up in their parking lot and serve food and drinks. And then just recently, L.A. announced she no longer has to do that. So now she's refiguring. And Mark Connell, who owns Botanica in New York, was getting around a rule that required to go drinks there to be accompanied by food. So he was just throwing in a bag of chips just to get around that arbitrary rule. So it takes a lot of pivoting and a lot of creativity from some of these owners to get around these crazy rules. What about bartenders? I know a lot of business owners, bar owners are concerned for their staff, obviously, as well. They want them to be safe, but they also want them to make money. And if people aren't really turning out, that's a difficult thing to really go back to. Some owners have gotten loans. Uh, A lot of them have gotten PPP loans, which have to go for the most part to employees, even though that's shifting as well. So some of them have been able to bring back staff in some capacity. 
but that also relies on the willingness of the bartenders to come back at all. And in some cases, that's not a problem. In, in New York, for example, Mark said his bartenders at Botanica would be happy to come back. You know, they are done being quarantined. They want to work. But out in L.A. at the living room, the situation is totally different. You know, the staffers are really cautious. Beyond this, you spoke about the business loans and all that. Costs are going up everywhere. So some of the great things about dive bars are some of the really cheap drink specials. And you talk about a place in Philadelphia that had a shot and a beer combo for $4. I think in Los Angeles, where I'm from, one of the fun places I used to go to back in the day, the Gold Room, they would do a same thing, a shot of tequila and a beer combo for $4. And these prices aren't necessarily sustainable that much anymore, depending on what the comeback is like. Yeah, a lot of these businesses were already struggling to survive in major cities. You know, dive bars have been disappearing for years, and this is really just exacerbating that. So Bob and Barbara's, a great bar in Philadelphia, has been known forever for serving the special. Elsewhere, it's known as the citywide special, which is a shot and a beer. It's usually a PBR and a shot of Jim Beam. And that price of that drink has been creeping up already from $3 to $3.50 to $4. And I talked to Jack Prince, who's owned the bar for 25 years, and he doesn't know what he's going to price it if and when the bar opens. He doesn't know how he's going to be able to make you know his bottom line work and still offer the affordable drinks that people know the bar for. I want to read the quote that you put from Prince at the very end of your article talking about the situation for dive bars. And he said, you know, if this is the end, wow, that sucks. But hopefully we will live on. And that's just got to be the sentiment that a lot of bar owners, business owners more broadly, obviously to restaurants and things like that. But that's just got to be the sentiment that a lot of people have with the way the shutdowns have impacted businesses. Dive bars are pillars of their communities. You know, they're places that form the foundation for a lot of people to come together. And they are struggling. They were struggling. They will continue to struggle. And they will continue to work to survive, to keep providing the scene and the drinks that people show up for. But it's going to be hard. And you speak about it throughout the article, how dive bars have had to update themselves, renovate to attract more people. But they also want to cater to the locals, the people in their community that really prop up that business. And this is why I love, you know, my own local dive bars, the same thing. You like to be a regular somewhere. You like to go and socialize and, and know the people there. And as Prince said, it, it would suck if that were to go away. This is really typified by uh, the living room right here in Los Angeles. And that Susan, the bar owner there, was talking about how she does cater to a couple different crowds, you know, during the daytime. She gets her regulars, and at night, you know, it's a more diverse, gentrified crowd, basically. And those daytime regulars are older folks because of the community. You know, they're older black folks. They're people that go way back with her, who show up for her. They're her friends. And they're worried. They're maybe not coming back. As much as they want to support, uh, you know, a friendly business, they're just not going to come out. Nick Mancall Battelle, reporter at Eater. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks again for having me. That's it for this weekend. Be sure to check out The Daily Dive every Monday through Friday. Join us on social media, at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter, and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow The Daily Dive on iHeartRadio, or subscribe wherever you get your podcast. This episode of The Daily Dive has been engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this was your Daily Dive Weekend Edition.